standing this morning as I read from God's Word. I'm going to read Psalm 115, verses 1 to 15, where I'll stop, but I'm going to focus on verses 12 through 15 this morning. And so follow along as I read from Psalm 115. I preached the first part of this text a couple of weeks ago. We return to it this morning. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Because of your mercy, because of your truth, why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? That our God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses they have, but do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let us pray. All right, you may be seated. Let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of the word. Lord, grant to us even now this morning... Hearts that are willing to receive and be soft under your teaching, grant to us humility and every confidence that what you have promised is true. Lord, may we not shrink back from standing upon these glorious promises and so in return have lives that are transformed by them. We pray this in your name. Amen. And this morning we continue and come to what I would call the second part of this psalm, though very few psalms are meant to be divided. I guess Psalm 119 would be an exception. Uh, We would not have morning and evening worship. We would have all-day worship if I were to preach such a text. Even just reading it would take up a long amount of time. But there are some themes that are here that I want us to look at that connect to the reality of of the sort of overarching theme of this summer sermon series that we have a king who is not only king of heaven, but he is king of earth. And that even as Christ rules from heaven, he is present on earth through his Holy Spirit among his church, and he has given it to us. He has given it to the church as our inheritance. We are to lay claim of that. What I mean by that is this, in all of its implications, that as the church fulfills the creation mandate and the Great Commission, we will be successful. And I believe that over time, that the Great Commission will be successful. We will have victory. To what extent, I do not know. I'm not going to give you a percentage of who will one day be in heaven, who will one day not be in heaven. I do believe with every confidence that there will be more in glory with Christ than there will not be. Now, that may seem like a bold claim, 
But the kingdom of Christ, as it's expressed in the New Covenant, in the New Testament church, is only 2,000 years old. It took about 6,000 years for the coming of Christ to be manifest. I don't know when Christ will return, but I do know this. Until his return, the church will have dominion. She will be successful, not because she is more glorious in the sort of outward sense of all the earthly kingdoms, because I can, I can imagine even now you're thinking, where is the victory? And I would say to you, open your eyes and look. What began with a band of Christ and his twelve has become a glorious even now on earth, living church militant of millions upon millions upon millions. Who could have guessed such a thing? Who could have imagined? We never know what will come, but we do know this. But the Lord is faithful to his covenant, to his promises. He will not forgive us. And the fulfillment of his promises remembered is the expansion of life and grace and glory. That is what I want us to look at this morning. If we are to be good citizens of Christ's kingdom, we must look to his promises as the guarantee of our success. Three points that I want to make. The first one, the Lord's remembrance. The second, the Lord's promise. The third, the Lord's blessing of expanded life and glory. I'll say him again. The Lord's remembrance the Lord's promise, the Lord's blessing of expanded life and glory. Now, as it relates to the Lord's remembrance, let me say this. The Lord, unlike us at times, finishes what he begins. Right now, I'm in the process of remodeling our basement, and we needed a new floor. Now, the problem with a new floor is you have to rip up the old floor, and then as my wife and I are surveying, if you've ever been to this room in our basement, it... It just, you've heard the phrase, road hard and put out wet. It was a mess. It was a disaster. Don't ever put carpet in your basement. It's a bad idea. I remember when we first moved into that house, we took a trip, an out west trip, and while we were there, our hot water heater decided to, well, just empty its contents all over the basement and continue to empty its contents all over the basement until someone who was looking after the house showed up two days later. And so... It was about four inches of water. We were in Colorado when this happened, and it got taken care of by one of those companies that helps clean up. So when we got back, it was dry, but everything had about four inches of water stain, bookshelves, furniture, and that carpet. So we finally got rid of the carpet. Well, when you do a full remodel, it isn't just the floor, is it? you got to pull up all the cord around. And then you look at the ceiling and go, well, while we're doing this and we don't have any floors, I may as well paint the ceiling. Well, then I need to paint the walls. Well, then I need to repaint all the trim. It's a massive endeavor. And as I'm doing all of this myself, I look at all of the other little projects in the house and I go, ugh. There's no end to it. And if there is anything that is true of me as a homeowner is that I do start things, and I often fail to finish them to completion. But as I told my wife, I'm going to finish the basement. (laughs) The Lord is not like this. The Lord does not interact with creation in such a way 
that he starts something and makes a mistake or has some dependency upon man and they make a mistake and so he has to go back to the drawing board. This is dispensationalism at its root. It denies a sovereign God. This is not the God of the Bible and this is not the God of Psalm 115. The God who made us is a God who keeps his promises. And the way that we know this is because we know that he is unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, and glory, and all of those things, that God never changes and that God remembers. The Lord has been, verse 12, mindful of us. He does not forget us. He will continue what he has begun. What did he begin? Well, he made us. In Genesis 3, even though we sinned, he made a promise to redeem us, and the surety of that redemption is Christ Jesus. He has remembered. Now, that word remembered is almost strange when you think of the mind of God. There is never a moment where God has any potential of forgetting. And so, in a sort of technical sense, God cannot remember because God does not forget. All of his promises, he is always mindful to. The reason why that word remember or mindful is probably a better expression of that is because it is a term that we understand. Just like the Bible speaks of the hand of God, the eyes of God, the mind, the heart, God doesn't have a body. He does not have parts and passions like men. He is a spirit without form. Christ, you remember, takes upon himself human form, but only in the incarnation and even now upon the throne, Christ has a human body that is glorified in his resurrection. When we look at the term remembered, we go to Isaiah 49. And I would argue that this is perhaps one of the most beautiful passages of the remembrance of Christ for his people. Israel says, the Lord has forsaken me. This is verse 14 of Isaiah 49. The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And then Isaiah writes, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Now, in Isaiah 49, the language of being written on God's hands is anthropomorphic language. That means it is the language of invoking human anatomy. Israel knows that God does not have hands. What they understand that to be is symbolic of his covenant. And the cutting of that covenant that God made with Adam and his wife, with Abraham, with Noah with Moses, with David, and so on. Well, and then ultimately Christ. God is reminding Israel that they are on his very flesh. They are part of him. That the promises that he has made with them are part of his being. He cannot forsake them. It's not that he will not. It's that he cannot. They will never be forgotten. That is to say, the Lord does not waver in his faithfulness to us. This is the kind of king we have. And so as we look at the sort of the title of this series, A King and His Kingdom, our king is a God who makes covenant and who does not forget covenant. 
Now, even the worldly understand this. Not every transaction is a covenant, but every covenant is a transaction. And in that transaction, you have two parties. Sometimes you have more, but really you have two parties, and they are making promises to one another that they will fulfill a certain obligation. And if that obligation is not fulfilled, there are punishments. In the covenant that God has made with us, he has obligated us to keep covenant with him. The reason why the covenant of grace is gracious is because even though we violate that covenant, the punishment for breaking that covenant is laid upon Christ and not us. It is, in essence, the covenant of works 2.0. It is the covenant made with Christ, not with Adam. And because Adam has violated that covenant of works, God has made the covenant with Christ the perfect son. And because Christ was faithful to that covenant, you and I are the benefactors of it. He is the surety of it. He is the stamp and seal that it has been achieved, that it has been fulfilled. This is what we mean by remembered. The Lord has been mindful of us. And so when you read that one little statement right there before the semicolon, the Lord has been mindful of us, you need to think, Covenant faithfulness, covenant remembrance. It is the language of covenant faithfulness. In fact, if you go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, we read this. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure with him, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. All of this, all of the mediation of this covenant is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, the psalmist does not know who Jesus is. He hopes in the Messiah, but Christ has not yet been revealed in the flesh. But all of those basic components of messianic fulfillment are here. And so the psalmist writes of the mindfulness of God that leads to the blessing of the whole house of whom Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord of the house. And so we must see, as it comes to the king and the kingdom, that we have a king who remembers and does not forget. And this stands in contrast to all the kings of earth who do not even know your name. This stands in contrast to the pastors of the churches of earth who don't even know the names. And I'm sorry, I messed up your name. I hope that's not a bad example. (laughs) I look at my own children and I don't get their name. It takes me three or four tries just to get the right name assigned to the right child. (laughs) God doesn't have that problem. Because God is both holy and sovereign. He is mindful of us. And that mindfulness, that remembrance, that covenant faithfulness leads to what comes next. The Lord's promise as the foundation for remembrance. Now, as we look at the Lord's covenant faithfulness, I want us to be explicitly covenantal in our theology. I took a course in seminary, um, and at the outset of that course on sanctification was the professor moving through the foundation of all sanctification is the Lord's covenant faithfulness to us. And that if anything, as Reformed Presbyterians, what we are at heart is 
federal theologians. Now, federal doesn't mean national level, like you often hear now. Federal means representative, contractual. And when we speak of federal theology, we mean this, that before God the Father, we are represented before him either in Adam or in Christ. If you're in Adam, better watch out. You have no hope. Adam broke covenant, and so did you. And so what we must do is we must see ourselves in covenant with the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. And that expression of the covenant faithfulness of God is seen through time in some major covenantal expressions of God's own faithfulness with us. Are you following? You have Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Christ in terms of chronological succession. And in each of those covenantal moments where God is expanding the purview and the sort of understanding of what the covenant is, kind of like unfolding a map, as you unfold the page, you see the map expanding, the timeline expanding. With Adam, we see the promise of the Messiah. It's often called the proto-euangelion, the proto-gospel. With Noah, there is the expression again that all of the nations of earth will be blessed and that God will hold fast to creation until God has done what he said he's going to do. What that means is this, that all of this scare over environmental danger is overblown. God will uphold creation until his promises reach fruition. Then there's Abraham, the promise of a family. And again, the seed who will come. And then you have Moses, the giving of the law in which Yahweh, in essence, weds himself to a nation. And that nation is given a law. That nation is given the, the, the sort of tabernacle and temple rules. And all of those things further express what the covenant is like. And then David, the Messiah, will be a king. And then Christ fulfills all of those things. It is God's promise that is the foundation for remembrance. Now, if you go back just a little bit, verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. And then if you go back even further to verse 1, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Verse 3, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. And these statements of God are contrasts to the gods of earth that are no gods at all, right? They're just the inventions of man. They're flights of fancy. They're madness. They're idolatries. But it is God's promise, which he did not have to make to us. He did not have to create us. But out of the fullness of the fellowship of the Godhead, just like out of the love of a husband and wife, through that act of great love, a child is conceived and is born into the world. Out of that great, glorious, intertrinitarian fellowship and love, man is made. Let us make man in our image. Which is why you and I are drawn into fellowship with one another and God. Our hearts, our minds, everything in us is drawn to and craves fellowship. Now, I don't mean you have to know everybody, but you've got to know somebody and you crave it. In fact, maybe you're more comfortable with just one or a few. But the Lord's promise 
is the foundation for remembrance. And he will not break his promise. And the fulfillment, what comes about is that of that promise is what we find as we continue through verse 12. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. Now, I would express, as you're looking at this, you see progression in terms of language. Us, house of Israel, Aaron. That number is not decreasing in terms of number. It is focusing in terms of what the covenant brings. As the, I want you to think of it this way, and I'm going to use some visual aids with my hands. As the covenant moves, I'm going to do it this way, forward into the future. It expands in our understanding not only of what it is, but who is part of it. So through the Old Testament, we find the number of the remnant increase to some degree along with the contours and the character and what the covenant actually looks like. It's like if you were to sit down and write a book, that story gets more full as every page is filled. So it is in the Gospels or in the Old Covenant and then in the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as that covenant increases in clarity and revelation... We see the number of people being added to it so that when we get to Pentecost and the New Covenant, we see that the Gentile nations are being brought in. And we find not only as we understand the covenant more, it actually begins to increase exponentially in terms of who is part of it. So that you and I are now part of it. That is what we see. Bless us. Bless the house of Israel. Bless the house of Aaron. And not only does it increase in number, but glorious benefit. It gets better as it goes on. The benefits are understood so that we are not only us, we see not only ourselves as those who were chosen, which we see in the language of Israel, right? It was once Jacob. Now it's Israel. And then Aaron was whom? The father of the priesthood. Of which the scriptures say, you are a kingdom, a nation of priests, a royal priesthood. This is what marriage ought to do, right? As it goes on, it gets better. As the covenant of Christ moves forward in time, the glorious benefits are expanding. Have you seen these Kickstarter campaigns where if you buy in... You need to go tell your neighbor because if you reach $100,000, there is this special thing that's done. If you get to $500,000, something else is done. All of these sort of tiers are unlocked. These are the unlocked tiers, T-I-E-R-S, levels of God's covenant faithfulness. We're not only blessed of God, but we are the chosen blessed And we are the blessed who get to serve in the very holy place of God himself. You are blessed, saints of God. You are blessed who fear him. Whether you're small or great, in the eyes of the world, you have unmitigated, ungoverned, that is, the governor is off, extraordinary, full-flowing blessings of God that pour forth from his holy mountain directly to you through Christ Jesus. Well, mediated through Christ, but directly to you, not through me, through Christ. 
He will bless you. Now, what do those blessings look like? Well, they look like the blessing of glorious blessing. That is, more of worshipers and more of the satisfaction that comes in dwelling with his, in his family. But he will bless us all. That is, every Christian that comes into the church that confesses the name of Christ is not waiting on the second baptism of the Holy Spirit, right, that comes when you speak tongues as some sort of Pentecostal caste system, but that when you are in Christ, all of his blessings are poured out upon you. This is what is signed and sealed even in the baptism of our children. That that child, by membership in the visible church, is blessed, and when that child lays hold of Christ Jesus, all of the blessings that are in Christ, in his death and resurrection, become theirs. It is an overwhelming tide of blessing. But there is also an exhortation. In verse 10 and 11, just prior to this passage, we read, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord. And then there is an implied exhortation in verse 13. He will bless those who fear the Lord. In order to know that you are part of the covenant community, part of God's family, you must exercise trust and fear in the Lord. Now, what does it mean to trust? It means to believe in the Lord's revelation as trustworthy and true. You believe what he says, and you live according to it. And to fear him means that you revere him above all others. The fear of the Lord is set in its antipathy, in opposite, as something other than the worship of idols. The fear of the Lord is the worship of the Lord. It is to cherish him above all things, and to see that he is a God not like the gods of earth who does whatever he wants, Although he has told us what he wants, right? He has told us that in his word. But to fear God is to place our hope, our trust, our confidence, to build our lives, to seek his glory, to fear him above all other men. And in doing so, we see and experience blessing. By keeping covenant through the provisions displayed, in what is manifested in the covenant itself. We keep covenant even as God does. Now, what are the terms for us? To trust, to hope, and to fear is to place our faith upon the revelation, the substance of the covenant. Whatever God has said is true, we say that's true. But not just in an assent intellectually, okay, I believe you, and to build our lives upon it, but to place all of our eternal hope on it. We refer to this really as faith. We place our faith upon Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not by works, it is not of yourselves, so that no man may boast. How was Abraham justified? It was not through circumcision, it was not through obedience, it was by faith. He was justified because he believed, and God counted that as righteousness. Now, where did that belief, where did that faith come from? Not a work. It was a gift of God. And so again, even in this exhortation, we find ourselves in need of what the king has to provide for us. I think it was Augustine that said, 
commandest, O Lord, what thou wilt, and grant what thou commandest. Obedience is essential in the life of a Christian. But there is no obedience apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in us. For no man can please God with our filthy rag deeds. We are all sinners, but in Christ Jesus, we are made new. What that means is as a child of God, you are no longer totally depraved, but you are in a state of grace and you can actually please God. But not of works that are not done by faith. This is how we keep covenant with the Lord. We cling to Christ, we lay hold of his work, we make it our own, and then we labor for his glory. And what we do as we labor is we see God remembering us and the fulfillment of those covenant promises coming true. And that's what we find next. The Lord's blessing of expanded life and glory. And so in verses 14 and 15 we read, May the Lord give you increase more and more. You and your children, may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Well, it's very clear in verse 14 that when we read of God's blessing and the increase of his kingdom, he is speaking generationally. He is speaking about babies. And he's not just speaking about natural-born children. Throughout the Old Testament, we know of the stranger, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. There are those who by every appearance appear to be without children or without parentage or apart from the covenant community. Yet what God does is he, in his grace, brings those people in. When Israel left Egypt, they didn't just spoil the treasures of Egypt. They took people with them, not as prisoners as Egypt held Israel. But as free men and women devoted to the worship of Yahweh, those Egyptians said, your God is the true God. We're going with you. Ruth, a Moabite, said, your God is the true God. I'm staying with you, Naomi. You and I, for the most part, I would imagine, are all Gentiles by generation. And the only reason we know of the glory of God is because Christ has come and he has flung wide the doors of heaven And he has brought increase, not to natural-born families, but we have been adopted into the household of faith. And so both of those are in view. We can overemphasize natural-born covenant children because what of those who cannot have children or who have not had children or who did not remember this promise when they were younger and it's too late to have children? God still gives increase. But I do think of my own children. And I think of God's mercy and favor and the benefits. Parents, I know it can be frustrating to sit with your children in church. But oh, the blessing of playing through sermons as children. Right? Coloring. When the word of God is being preached at you over you, around you, and you're being carried from one room to the next, just trying to sort of figure out what to do with these noise-making creatures at times, it seems, right? But what a blessing. I grew up with that blessing, falling asleep on my dad's shoulder with my head rolling on and off and on and off, going, when will the sermon end? What a blessing. God's covenant 
cannot help but increase. Because it is founded upon, it is connected to the one who destroyed death and hell and the grave forever. And so we will have children, and those children will have children, and those children will remember the Lord, and then there will be those who come through those doors whom we have never met. And God will bring families in. He will call fathers, and they will bring their families in. He will call mothers. He will call children He is good in his expression of mercy. And even now there are families, there are households, there are individuals who know Christ, who never knew that they would know Christ. The Christ has made himself known to them. Surprised by joy, as C.S. Lewis would say. That this blessing of God is life in the Son. And so in Luke 13, Jesus says in two ways, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden. And it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of flour or meal until it was all leavened. It's a family that will always grow more and more. You and your children. And just because we may in our own lifetimes not experience the measure of success that we think is part of the growth of the kingdom, there are places in which the church militant is very, very militant. There are places on earth where the church isn't growing. But then there are places on earth where you have no idea and you could not explain or express the level of growth that is happening in the midst of trial. Really, God is sovereign over this. All we can do is be faithful. But as we are faithful to fear and to trust, the church will grow. You and your children. Because God's promises are intergenerational because they are eternal. They are everlasting. And because they are rooted and grounded upon Christ, the firstborn of all creation. And so what are we to do? We are to be confident in the Lord's promises that you have seen, not only in Scripture, not only in the history of the church after Scripture was canonized, but in our own lives. I mean, think of the Lord's faithfulness to us. I remember closing my, the door to the education building in March of 2020. I've told this before, and I thought, are we all going to be alive There was a lot of fear-mongering. There was a lot of uncertainty. Fear is a very powerful weapon, right? But it is only used by the wicked powerful. God never uses fear to motivate his children to faithfulness. What does he use? He uses promises like these. And we are to be confident in those promises. And what we have seen since this explosion of chaos and uncertainty in the West predominantly... And in the world, I guess, at large, in light of this tiny little microscopic virus that no one seems to be over yet, is what? God can do all manner of things in all manner of circumstances through all manner of people. I didn't know most of you people two and a half years ago. I didn't know most of you, or a lot of you, and you just showed up. But you didn't just show up, did you? What was God doing? He was blessing those who feared the Lord more than men who trusted in the Lord more than men. 
and the glorious benefit of that laboring and acting in trust and hope and fear of God, not men or viruses or whatever you could fear on earth, more and more you and your children. We are to be confident in these promises. These are God's promises. These aren't promises made by men. And so verse 15 reads, is a wonderful capstone to this very short section of the psalm. We'll move to the next part later. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. That little clause there at the end, that, just one, that one line. Who made heaven and earth? Who made heaven and earth? The children's catechism begins perhaps more beautifully than any of the catechisms. Who made you? God. Why does a child need to remember that? Because to a child, the figures that loom largest in their minds are either their parents or some adults. And if they are to learn what true obedience is and true confidence and hope is as they move forward into adulthood, that being an adult is not all there is, that growing up is not the greatest goal, that the grounds for all of our hope and our surety of glory that is to come is a God who made us. And what is encapsulated in that little statement is that the one who made us knows us, and the one who knows us loves us, and the one who loves us has great designs for us. And as the one who has made us, who possesses ever-expanding glory and joy and life through his Son, he brings us into that fellowship, and guess what? We have ever-expanding joy and life. That is the God whom we serve. And he is not like the kings of, his, of this earth. And so we must be confident in his promises. We must trust that what he has said will come to pass. And in this we will find hope. Let's pray. Lord, we ask even now this morning.